After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And welcome back to another Baseball America Prospect Podcast. This is Jeff Ponce with J.J. Cooper. We're going to be talking Tampa Bay Rays prospects today. J.J., welcome back to another Top 10. How are you? Long time no see, Jeff. Good to good to talk to you. We did, if you're on the Baseball America feed, I hope you are. You got to hear me ask Jeff about the Astros prospects yesterday. We're flipping it today. Today... Jeff's going to ask me about the Rays because I did the Rays list and one that I've done more years than I would like to admit uh, probably, but it's been a, a kind of a fun list to do over the years. So it, I'm excited to talk Rays prospects. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, it's an interesting team, obviously one that's been competitive, one that uh, despite less spending resources than almost any organization in baseball uh, consistently target and develop players. So let's kick it off a little bit by talking about this raised team as currently constituted. What have they sent to the major league level over the last few years? What parts of their team are homegrown? And how have they used some of those prospects maybe to acquire players that uh, are now stalwarts in that lineup? That's more a more fraught question than if you'd asked this question a year ago. Um, because I feel like that we kind of have to start by acknowledging the uh, the uh, the legal case, you know, that's that that's currently going on in the Dominican, which is a year ago, six months ago, even if we were talking about this, we would start with shortstop Wander Franco, who number one prospect in baseball multiple times, what was having the season that you would expect him to have was basically the best player on the Rays until he went on administrative leave for uh, allegations. Now, again, charged crimes at this point, not convictions. Want to make sure that follow the legal, you know, the, the definition of the legal process here. But he has been charged with what the charging documents, if they are accurate, lay out are truly heinous crimes as far as relationships with at least one, if not more, you know, but at least one un- well underage girl in, you know, in the Dominican Republic. And so the the baseball situation with Wander Franco is much less significant than the legal ramifications. But it also does mean when you say, what have they produced? Well, Wander Franco is, I, again, I wanted to at least acknowledge it. Now we move on, but like he would have been like one of their shining success stories. I don't think that you want to say shining success story in Wander Franco right now. Beyond that, I would say that the thing that we saw last year that was important for them is they had had a number of top prospects in 2022 fall flat when they were kind of given the opportunity. I think that 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 uh that Josh Lowe would be the most significant one who fell flat in 22, given another opportunity in 23, 
he was a significantly better player. He was the player that you expected to uh, to see from them. They also have guys like Taylor Walls, who uh, has been a productive, very good defender. I don't think he's ever really going to hit that much, but a good defender. They've had, as they often do, players that they acquired when they were not really established in trade. Isaac Paredes had a very good year last year. And I think that you have to, you know, also note that like Jonathan Aranda has come up. We'll see whether he has the kind of the step forward in 24, like Josh Lowe had in 23. And they've had a lot of arms come up. They had to have a lot last year because pretty much they're in almost the entirety of their projected rotation ended up on the IL, many of whom have had to have Tommy John surgery. So you've seen, you had Taj Bradley come up and have, I would say, a rather uneven uh, big league debut. You had, obviously, guys like Shane McClanahan, who's been there a couple of years, but is homegrown for a top draft pick, who was very good, has been very good when healthy. The question is, is just how, you know, how much will he be able to stay in being healthy because he had a significant injury and is, is battling back from that. We'll have Shane Boz coming back this year from Tommy John as well. We'll have Jeffrey Springs coming back. We'll have Drew Ross, Rasmussen, who, again, was acquired when he was still a prospect, basically, but has developed in. So the answer is that this is the Rays, right? It is a they they work in volume. Don't don't feel like I'm going to buy if you're a Rays fan, and kudos if you are, because there are less of you than there should be in the western central Florida area, considering uh, the success of this team. But don't buy jerseys for Rays players, thinking that you can feel confident that they will just be a Ray for life. There are really not much of anything like Rays for life. It is more of a team that looks at when a player is at peak value and they repeat the process. We've seen this obviously with the Tyler Glasnow trade of this offseason where Tyler Glasnow has been one of the best Rays pitchers over the last few years. And hey, he's coming near to free agency. We don't really re-sign guys like that very often. So off he goes, Ryan Pepio and, uh, and Johnny DeLuca come in, and let's repeat the process and see if if Ryan can be uh, uh, another guy to step into the rotation. Like when you look at the Rays, Jeff, what stands out like for the you know to you as far as these last couple of years and, and kind of where they're where they are now? Yeah, I think um, you know the the question is every single year, you know, how they're going to fit all these guys into their forty man roster, <laughs> and they navigate that pretty well. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at the, the major league level with this team, um, year in and year out, as you mentioned, three or four players could potentially change, you know, in the lineup. Um, there's a lot of interchangeable parts. I would argue that they probably platoon. And this goes back to, you know, even prior to Kevin Cash, they platoon as well as anybody. Um, you know, they have three guys in the lineup now. Brendan Lau, Josh Lowe, and marked down at least as the DH is Richie Palacios. Um, all three of those guys are probably going to platoon. Um, Harold Ramirez has sort of been, you know, their go-to guy against left-handed uh, pitching. Um, DeLuca could maybe slide into a similar role this year. Um, it'll be interesting as to who ends up their everyday starting shortstop, obviously because of what hangs over the organization uh, and the major league team right now with, with Wander Franco in that situation. Um, so, 
it's kind of interesting because that really does sort of throw um, a whole other element into the blender that I think if we look back a year ago would have been fairly consistent. Um, you know, you do have a handful of guys that they've acquired, whether it was when they were prospects or young major leaguers that were potentially underrated that have developed into better players and now above average regulars and guys like Yandy Diaz, Randy Arizarena, um, Isaac Paredes, um, who I think was billed as, you know, a, a solid prospect with the Tigers, um, <clears throat> maybe a borderline top 100 guy, maybe in the back of the top 100 a couple of times. Um, he's turned into more of a power hitter than I think we ever anticipated watching him uh, in the minor leagues. And even to a lesser extent, I think like Jose Siri, where they find a guy who's a standout defender and just kind of hits enough for them to be effective. Um, it's interesting how they're able to sort of, as you said, rinse and repeat the process. You look at the rotation, which a few years ago had guys like Blake Snell, you had a Tyler Glass now, and we have like Shane Boz, who's now returning from injury, um, Shane McClenahan, and you had this sort of young, like nasty rotation with a ton of stuff. Those guys are either injured <laughs> or have been shipped other places, but they were able to go out and get Zach Eflin, who had. Uh, a truly breakout season at, at age 28, 29 last year um, kind of goes in as a de facto ace. They got a really good season out of Zach Lytle, uh, which I did never anticipate. Littell, right. That's like tell, I think. Yeah. I, oh, is it Littell? Is that how you say I it? Believe, I believe. And that's me giving pronunciation. So I could be completely wrong, but uh, <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Aaron Savali, um, you know, obviously they go and acquire him and it's funny kind of digging into pictures, looking at some of that stuff for our fantasy rankings. I think I prefer Savali for the next three years versus Shane Bieber <laughs> and what they acquired him for, et cetera. It's sort of remarkable. You talked about Pepio and then, you know, a, a young um, potential in a homegrown option in Taj Bradley. There's still a lot of good stuff here. You could add Shane Boss to that rotation. You mentioned Jeffrey Springs, Drew Rasmussen, uh, and then Shane McClenahan in another year. Um, I don't know if this is sort of a bridge year, but it does feel a little bit like the really nasty Rays team that's going to be stacked, particularly in the rotation, might actually be the 2025 team and not 2024. Um, but they found some options to sort of patchwork their way through it, and I think will still be competitive in the division. The thing that you touched on that I wanted to guide in a little bit more is, is when you said that they platoon really well. The thing that I've been impressed about with them is I, it's easy to hear platooning and you're saying, oh, so a lefty was on the mound, so you had your right-handed heavy lineup, and a right-hander was on the mound, so you had your left-handed heavy lineup. That's not what the Rays do when we talk about platooning. They're one of those teams that I think takes platooning and takes, if you really could go beyond line, platooning to lineup optimization to another level, where it's like what they're doing is, is they have two things that stand out to me about the Rays and how they operate over year over year, right? Okay, there's a lot, but here's two that jump out. One, everyone in the outfield usually who plays regularly in the outfield is center field capable. And so what I mean by that is, is that generally, yes, it was Kevin Kiermaier for a long time, and then right after that it was Brett Phillips, and then it was uh, Jose Siri. If you play center field for the Rays, they're a run prevention team, so they generally are going to have someone who's a seven or an eight out there defensively. But then you look at the corners, and 
in the corners, whether it was Austin Meadows, whether it was Manuel Margot, whether it's Randy Rosarena, you can go down the list. Most of the guys that they have play left or right are also, for many teams, center fielders. And so that's, but there's a mix and match component to that. The other part I would say with that is, is very much a mix and match component when you talk about who plays in the infield and who plays where and when, which I think is a kind of a perfect way for us to kind of jump into the, the race number one prospect, Junior Caminero, because you said, so who's going to be their shortstop on opening day? And if I wanted to be really arcane about it, I think a lot of that depends on, so who's on the mound for the other team? Who's on the mound for the Rays? Because I think the Rays do play, hey, so-and-so is going to play third base today and because they want to get his bat in the lineup. But also on top of that, it may be in some cases where it's like, and we've got a pitcher on the mound that we think that will have two balls hit the third base today as opposed to six yesterday or five tomorrow. So this is the day to play this player at third base or this is the play, day to play this player at second base or shortstop or whatever. And so when I look at it, it's probably going to be like, it could be Junior Caminero. It could be Osalvis Basabe. Taylor Walls, I think, will be the long-term shortstop if they're willing to his bat, but he's probably not going to be ready for opening day. Had off-season surgery is probably not going to be ready to go come opening day. Barring a trade, like it's, even though I don't think Junior Caminero is going to be a long-term shortstop for the Rays, it's not crazy to think that he could be their opening day shortstop, is it, Jeff? No, I I don't think that it's crazy. I mean, he's obviously played a decent amount of time uh, at that position. You know, I I would assume, I, I mean, I guess because Paredes is going to play third base. Um, you could have Cameron Arrow over there. Would be kind of an interesting uh, left side of the infield for <laughs> for what it's worth. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I think I've just sort of mentally just uh, stored it away that Cameron Arrow was going to end up at third long term. But they could miss and mix and match, and you could have Cameron Arrow playing, you know, 50 games at third and 40 games at short, and kind of moving moving guys around giving them some DH days as well to rest them. So it wouldn't shock me. It'd be interesting to how they sort of shake out the infield, but I don't think that's uh, any different than any season that we enter with the Rays as to how their position stuff will will shake out on a day-to-day basis. No, it's not. And, but I think, again, that's a perfect segue also to one of the reasons we're really excited about Junior Caminero. Is he a shortstop long-term? No, no. I mean, you look at him and you say third baseman, you would say, I think he'd be fine in right field, although that's not really a position he's really focused on. But the thing that does jump out and the thing that you and I both get excited about, this is this is real power. And it's real power with a chance to hit to go with it. And that's the thing that is what, what I think it gets easy to be lost with Caminero is how far, what a leap last year was. When we talk about the Rays doing volume trades, well, it's rather famous now that Junior Caminero is not a Rays signee. Junior Caminero was a guy that they acquired from the Guardians in a trade that that basically will go back, you know, will now be one of those. The, the Rays don't win every trade, but the Junior Caminero trade, I, I feel like is one of those that will be uh, talked about 
for years to come as, oh, look, this is what the Rays do, because nothing against Tobias Myers, but we know they won this trade because Tobias Myers was not a Guardians prospect for very long. He had to be on the 40-man, so the move was one to clear a 40-man roster spot. Speaking of, Jeff, you mentioning there how well they do with the 40-man roster. Clear the roster spot, add Junior Camonero. The Guardians soon thereafter say we can't keep Myers on our 40-man roster and DFA him. He had a decent year with the Brewers last year, uh, but largely at double-A, the same level he was at at the time that the Rays traded him. And Junior Camonero turns into one of the best prospects in baseball. I've talked a little bit about him. Again, like the thing that jumps out to me is is he came up at the end of to low A at the end of 22, began 23 in high A with the intention that he would stay there for quite a while. Instead, we, we get a situation where he uh, he is just too good for that. Yeah, um, it's sort of uh, boom. He's playing in the playoffs. Yeah, it's so, it's sort of remarkable. So, what what stands out to you about Junior? I think it's just the the combination of power and contact. You just it's rare that you see that. Um, you know he he has enough approach. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily classify him as a free swinger. Um, but he's also not somebody that's that's up there passively just looking for walks. He's looking to do damage. He's looking to get the bat and the ball, which I think when we look at the best hitters in baseball, they typically balance that pretty well, and I think Camonero does. So just from an offensive standpoint, I think there's a ton to be excited about, and the skills are going to get better, and it's possible he grows into more game power as well, and he truly is sort of that – 70 power guy that can hit for you know 30 plus home runs every year while hitting above 260 270 um it's a rare combination in today's game but i think that's the kind of player that he can become and if he can do that playing shortstop more often than not or third base um that's a really really valuable player i'm gonna go a step further than you you said 70 we put it in the uh, in the handbook, and and I thought about it long and hard. But we put eighty on the power. Yeah. And the argument I will make is is I will try to lay this out because we had this asked a lot. Why why is Junior Camonero eighty power? And I'll start with the preface of saying I, I know that if we use the full scouting scale twenty to eighty, there are times we will be wrong by doing so. I will also say if you don't use the full scouting scale and you put everyone as a 45, 50, or 55, you will also be wrong at times about the scouting scale. There are error bars on all of this. However, if you said, well, why would you put 80 on Camonero? My argument would be, you look at his age. He's exceptionally young for a guy who reached the majors last year. You look at what he did last year, reached the majors at that age, was one of the best power hitters in the minor leagues, and did so at age-appropriate or better leagues, right? He started in high A, did most of his damage in double A. Yes, the double A ball was freaky, although he was there midway through the first half, so he didn't get as much of freaky, sticky ball as, as say, uh, you know, some of the, you know, Jackson Trurio or players there the full year did. But he was there for that. And the Southern League, while offensive, I, I, I can't say that this was something where his homers were, offensively induced because he was playing in crazy ballparks or anything like that. Okay. So we had 30 plus homers. 
We had that while striking out at less than 20% of the time, which for his age is kind of a, a combination that we rarely see. You look at the, the deeper into the batted ball data, it's solid. I wouldn't, again, I'm not going to say that he's going to be Nick Madrigal, who never swings and misses. Nick Madrigal wishes he could hit like Junior Caminero. Okay, so now we have that. Then we have, okay, well, how hard does he hit the ball? As hard as anybody. And when we mean that, like Ellie De La Cruz was not in the minors for the full season. If Ellie had been, maybe he would have been vanquished for this. But if you said players in the minors who played a basically a full season, you said who was had the best exit below Junior Caminero. Got up to the majors. Well, in the majors, they, they're starting to measure bat speed. You say, okay, well, how was – looks like Junior Caminero's bat speed is really special. What does it look like if you compare it now that he's in the majors and you have that major league bat speed? Top 10 in the majors in bat speed last year from what we saw in his very brief uh, appearance. So we have a guy who already has top of the scale exit velos, who's producing productive home run power, who has top of the scale bat speed, and I think very importantly to this, has shown that he can make adjustments, has shown he can make contact. We may be wrong, but if you wanted the short summation of why we would put 80 power on that guy, that's why, because we don't do it very often. We do it very rarely, but to kind of, you know, ping pong this back, like, Jeff, like, are there, I, I struggle to come up with guys who had a better, I'm going to be a big league power hitter starter set than what Junior came in here. Who comes to mind for you who's like, oh, okay, Caminero's great, but he's not so-and-so? Um, I would say, like, what I anticipated Vlad Guerrero Jr. was going to be. Um, that was a crazy combination of contact and power and approach. Um, I'm not sure that from a home run perspective, it was ever as actualized as it was um, for Cameron Arrow at that age, even. Um, I think the hit tool was better. Um, but the power, being able to get to it in game, probably not better. Um, Eloy Jimenez had a ton of power in game. I don't think that that was uh, equal. Um, I think it was probably like Chris Bryant, who, who had a ton of homers in the minors, wasn't there for a, a long time, but, you know, had a pretty prodigious, um, you know, power, et cetera. Obviously, the body broke down there and but his peak was an MVP. So <laughs> when you're comparing it to an MVP who, you know, helped the team win a World Series, you're uh, in pretty rare and Chris Bryant is a perfect example because Chris Bryant did, like, he was in an era where at college where the bats could best be described as if you rolled up a magazine and hit with it, you probably, the ball would probably go a little further. Like, we, you know, in an era where UCLA won the national title without anyone on their team who hit five home runs, Chris Bryant out-homered many teams in college, then went to the minors, hit 43. Uh, and pretty much then was up in the majors. So, yeah, like that's the guy I would say is, is like every bit of you could say had as much, if not more. But I would say even with Vlad Jr., like with Vlad Jr., the question was is we know he hits the ball really hard. We know he makes a ton of contact. He hits the ball on the ground a lot, and that's been a problem for him in the in the majors to some extent. It's kind of hard to hit home runs when you're hitting the ball down or level, and that's never been a problem for Junior Caminero. The other thing about Caminero that I really love 
is yes, most like we talked about Isaac Paredes earlier. Isaac Paredes's power is all about getting the ball out front and yanking it down the line. Junior Camonero's power is to left, it's to center, it's to right. And I'm always kind of a fan, not because you want to see a guy trying to hit a whole lot of homers to right. I don't think Junior Camonero is trying to hit a lot, whole lot of homers to right. But if someone's going away, 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 or like throws, you know, a hittable pitch on the outside corner, he's not trying to yank that. He's comfortable staying back and driving that. And he has enough power in that bat. He has enough bat speed to when he does that, a lot of times that will leave the fence. That will clear the right field fence. And we also will see it to the right center field power alley. It's one of those things where you just look at it all together. And, man, it's a, it's a really, really fun package of, of what Junior Camaro could be, Jeff. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, he's one of the best prospects in the game. So it's worth spending a little extra time talking about Junior. Before we get into the rest of the system, though, JJ, let's take a quick break right now. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't a search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. That's why I use Indeed for our hiring at Baseball America. It allows me to do everything on one website. I get quality candidates. I can schedule them. I can interview them. I can screen them. I can send messages to them all within Indeed. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Just go to Indeed.com slash Baseball America right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Baseball America. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. And we're back. All right, JJ, we just went through Junior Cameron era. We talked a little bit about the future of the Rays, the current state of the Rays. Let's talk about the rest of the system here. We did discuss a little bit about who's going to play shortstop. We actually have a, another infielder at number two and a really talented defensive shortstop, but I think a divisive offensive profile. Of course, I'm talking about uh, Carson Williams, um, somebody who ranks highly in our top 100 and I think is viewed generally within the prospect sphere as a pretty highly regarded player, really strong defender. There's a lot of power in the bat gets on base quite a bit, but there is a lot of swing and miss. So talk to me a little bit about Carson Williams and what you were getting in your reporting. The, the big thing that stands out with Carson Williams and 
I don't think we've seen the best of Carson Williams, which makes sense considering how young he is. But like, I think that defensively, you are talking about one of the best defensive shortstops in the minors right now. A guy who should be, I would go far beyond saying he should be able to quote stick at the position. This is going to be far beyond that. This is a guy who should be an asset defensively at shortstop for a long time to come. Offensively, I think that there's still a lot of upside here. You look at it and you see the power already at times, and you will see at times some at-bats where you look at it and say, I, I don't think that he was uh, – I-, I think the pitcher got him on that. I think the pitcher was a little bit ahead of him there. He's moved so quickly, partly because this is the world we live in now as far as the minors, partly because, though, he's so good defensively, he has so much power that he he just hit – I mean, he's performed to where you kind of keep having to move him up. I don't think so as a hitter. I think that there's still some more refinement to be made here. I think there's always going to be some swing and miss. But if you told me at some point in 2024, the Rays look around and say, is this our answer at shortstop? Especially if he gets off to a fast start, double A, you know, maybe it's a little bit time triple A. I don't think that's crazy. Mainly because we have the Taylor Walls example here, which is it's like, Taylor Walls has shown he's a bottom-of-the-order hitter. I think it's comfortable to say at this point. But he's good enough defensively to where they're willing to play him because of that, like that. Well, Carson Williams should be better than Taylor Walls offensively, and he should be potentially a similar value defensively. It's it's a matter of when is that going to be the time, especially for a team that I still think is going to contend. Um, I love, I love, to, as we're doing these things, to kind of watch as much video as I can of a player. And one of the things that does stand out to me, I love looking at with shortstops is there's a category of kind of the above average play. And you don't make, no one makes every like extra, I think it's called extra effort plays when you tag it in synergy and all. And so I love to watch extra effort plays, not because you expect to make them, see a player make all of them, but it shows you. It gives you in a very short period of time, you can watch 15, 20, 25 plays where a player was stretched to their limit defensively and see what they can do. And sometimes you will pull that player up and you'll go, oh, okay. Edwin Arroyo, who's a very solid defender for the Reds. But the thing that stands out to me watching a lot of Edwin Arroyo videos on the Reds list, which we'll probably cover this, you know, we already did, I think, cover this a little bit on the Reds podcast uh, we did in December, but like, there aren't a whole lot of plays where you say, wow, how did he make that? Partly because of his arm, which is really special. Carson Williams makes a number of plays where you say, wow, how did he make that? And having, you can play shortstop without a 70 arm. Obviously, we've seen many examples. David Eckstein for a while showed you could play it with a Ford 30, probably a 30 arm hard to do but when you have that kind of arm what it allows you to do is you can leave your feet to make a play that other guys can't you can go deeper in the hole plant your feet and you don't have to just stick that ball in your back pocket carson williams has that ability and that's something that's really fun to watch yeah and i think when you have that sort of defensive ability at a premium position, particularly shortstop, and there's any semblance of offensive upside, 
that makes for a really exciting player. And I think that Williams has more than just a little bit of offensive upside. This is a guy that, you know, potentially could be like an 850 OPS if you want to throw a number on it type of guy where the bat, you know, batting average from year to year probably fluctuates pretty heavily, but he's always getting on base at a 10, 11, 12% clip while hitting for power as well. And I think there's potential 25 home run home power in the bat. I have a crazy comp for him. I'm not normally a comp guy, but I, I like this one in some ways. Dansby Swanson, which is, I think if you look at Dansby Swanson, you always had to accept with Dansby Swanson, there's some swing and miss. And with Dansby Swanson, because of that, if you look at kind of his offensive contribution year from year, he has years where it's really tracks really well. And he has other years where it's like, he's still mm-hmm. solid offensively, but not special that year. Sure. But the defense that he gets every year means that you put it all together and he's a very well-rounded player. A, you know, it's going to be like a 10 plus year regular when it's all said and done. I think that, and also, by the way, Dancy Swanson, I think his athleticism going back to high school and his basketball career and all was always a little bit underrated. Carson Williams, same way, really good athlete, really good defender. And there's some pop in the bat. That's kind of, I think that having a Dansby Swanson type career, again, production wise, I'm not saying they do everything identically as far as their swing or anything, but production wise would be really not crazy for me to see that happening with Carson Williams. There's still some risk of him reaching that because again, he's still, he's still a little ways away from that, but I I do think he could be, could be pretty special if it all clicks. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about this list. I think the top four players on this are probably the players that I would imagine generate the most questions. Number three is Curtis Mead. Um, Kind of a a rough season for Curtis Mead. I know he he made his major league debut, um, but still big questions defensively. Injuries, which have kind of plagued him. How what what do the Rays and what do scouts sort of make of Curtis Meade's 2023 heading into 2024? There is some danger of prospect fatigue here because in an ideal world, Curtis Meade would not be someone we could still talk about, right? If a healthy Curtis Meade, who's fully healthy for the entirety of the 2023 season, should have graduated. And I think the the understandable prospect fatigue out there, the concerns out there are the things that we've been worrying about for multiple years. Where is he going to play? And if you said, well, why? What are the questions about where he's going to play? I I was just waxing poetic about Carson Williams' arm. I will not do the same about Curtis Mead. Curtis Mead, defensively, I think as far as fielding the ball, as far as range, all that, it's fine. I'm not going to say it's special or anything like that. I've never really talked to anyone who said, oh, it's he's an exceptional defender or anything like that. But he's always had trouble with his throwing and how much that's going to affect him. We're not going to cover everyone in the top 10 because we don't want to give away the whole list. You can check it out at baseballmerics.com. I will say, he is not the worst throwing infielder among Ray's top prospects. And Austin Shetton, you know, is the guy who, who holds that crown. But he is someone who his defensive limitations are always going to be there. And this is a player, a type of player that the Rays have had a, a, a few of these. And it'll be interesting to see how this works out. Because I do think Curtis Mead's going to hit. Curtis Mead has always, and when he was healthy last year, he showed this, 
has always had the ability to hit the ball really hard and to know when to swing, what pitches to swing at. It's a very good starting point for an offensive approach, for an offensive skill set. But if you're saying that you're going to be doing that as a second baseman, as a third baseman, it's more valuable than if you say you're doing that as a first baseman. And if you say you're doing it as a first baseman, you say, okay, with the Rays right now, we have Yandy Diaz, who was really good there last year. We have Jonathan Ronda, who's best position's first base. And you wouldn't, if you add me to that, you, you're, okay, we're getting pretty loaded there at first base. And then you also have like, okay, well, Paredes should play every day. If Camonero's up, he should play every day. Both of them, their primary position is first base, I mean, third base. So how are you going to get both of them lined up? You could see even like one of them playing first base on a sporadic basis. Getting really crowded at first. If, if Curtis Meade can give them, I, to give an example of a player who's done a good job of making this work, another system I do. I know you've always been a, you know, Edward Julian, an Eddie Julian fan. And Julian last year, to his credit, I think as a second baseman, worked his way to playable. I'm not going to go further than that. I don't think that the Twins would go further than that. They still largely pulled him from close games at the end to bring in someone better defensively. But if Meade can be that, then that's a different story than if you say he's not playable at second or he's not playable at third. That's where I'm going to be interested to see. I have much less concerns about his bat. But the other part of all of this that fits into this is, is okay, you also have that they have, again, we said multiple first basemen. They still have Brandon Lau. They have Junior Camonero. They have Taylor Walls. They have Carson Williams. The Rays, the other thing with the Rays is it gets crowded fast. So this is, I think, going to be a big year for Curtis Bean. Yeah, for sure. Um, And he's just such an interesting player because of the Australian background, um, but also just another guy they acquired from the Phillies for Christopher Sanchez, who's been a perfectly fine. uh, Oh, by the way, you know, yeah, like that trades a lot more even than it was laid out. You know, even maybe I laid out for a while there. Christopher Sanchez, like the Phillies are like, we're good with this. We're, We're fine. Christopher Sanchez is a good starter for us. I do think that uh, Meade has the ability with his bat to maybe change some of those opinions in the coming years. We shall see. Um, you know, we can go through the rest of this this top 10, of course. Um, I want to give it, uh, turn it over to you. We do have the top 30 out on the site now. Give me a player from, you can go from four all the way out to 30, but give me a player that you think potentially could have a big breakout uh, coming into to, or, or excuse me, coming out of 2024, who's sort of your breakout guy in this system? Okay, I, I I probably go to this well too often. I think I've done it in a chat already for the Rays. So I, there's a part of me that's like, JJ, don't talk about Chandler Simpson again. But I feel like I'm going to talk about Chandler Simpson again, and not because I think that Chandler Simpson is a top. He's not on our top ten, but I do think. If you are talking about that profile, right? You talk about the profile that I would say that the current game and the rules are encouraging, which is speed, stolen bases, defense, athleticism, right? Chandler Simpson, the the, the best way I can put it is this. We have Victor Scott and Enrique Bradfield as Victor Scott's in the 100. Like those are 
those are guys in the back or just off the hundred guys, right? Bradville's just off, if I remember right. Chandler Simpson's not there right now. And I'm not saying that Chandler Simpson's as good as Victor Scott or as good as Enrique Bradfield. I am saying that I feel like that he's viewed as in a different area code a lot of times. And I, I think that that's probably underselling him. I just like the fact that Chandler Simpson, I do think, can hit more than a lot of people think. I will, as I keep beating the drum on note, this is the guy who led Division I baseball in batting in his draft year. That's something that is very hard to do. He does not have power. He knows he does not have power. Um, I've watched a lot of, I think I watched every televised extra base hit that Chandler Simpson had last year. Saw him in person as well, I believe. But like, the thing I noted is his doubles, he very rarely hits the ball over the outfielder, even though those outfielders are not set up very deep. However, he is a guy who is so fast that if he hits the gap, and the right fielder has to come over to the ball, he's going to be standing on second base. If he gets the ball where the outfielder has to go back anywhere close to the wall, Chandler Simpson is standing on third base. Was an infielder at uh, Georgia Tech. And when we talk about arms, I mean, again, this, maybe this is a phylum that the, the Rays love. I know, Jeff, you've seen, you saw Chandler Simpson throw in the infield in the cake, didn't you? I did. It was not great, Coach. I saw him throw in the outfield too. It was it was not great. I, that I, is not his It's a one. I mean, let's be like it's it is a it, the Rays immediately moved him to the outfield, rightfully. I don't think it's gonna be a big problem for him out there because you can get around an arm, quick release, momentum, all that. He's not gonna. He's not gonna throw a Clemente throw from the from the track to throw a guy out at home. Don't worry about that. But he's developing in the outfield, and I think the question will be that really will kind of answer the question for him is how good is he going to be defensively long term in the outfield? Because if he's really good in the outfield, then this guy's really interesting. If he's just fine, if he's a guy who a year from now, two years from now, we're writing that his speed helps him make up for the route mistakes and the reads, that's a different story. But I do want to see how well he can develop as he gets more and more time in the outfield. So he's one, and I feel like I have to give, I'm going to give three outfielders the quickie version. So we mentioned Simpson. The other two that I'm going to mention that I think are kind of also interesting the same in a similar manner is, is Mason Auer, was terrible last year, but he was really good in 22. I'm going to be fascinated to see, can he make some adjustments? He looked lost at the plate way too often last year, but the tools are really special. He's shown in the past. I, I don't want to just say that, oh, he reached double A and double A chewed him up and spit him out. I'm not willing to go there yet. I want to see if a year to pull back, reassess, regain some confidence, if in a return, he can show more of what he showed in 22. And then Cam Meisner, I get it. The Rays are going to try to get Cam Meisner to see if he can hit a left-handed pitcher. We are now in, I think, year four, five, six, or seven of that experiment, going back to his college days at Missouri and all, and the answer is no. If you focus on what he can do, though, the Cam Meisner who who – who is 
needs a court order to face a left-handed pitcher is an interesting player. The Cam, you know, the Cam Meisner hits right-handers is a pretty productive player who's good defensively outfield. Gets that raised thing of he was left unprotected in Rule Five draft. I don't want to make it sound like Cam Meisner is going to have a breakout season in the big leagues for the Rays this year. I'm still not ready to give up on him though as well. Those are three outfielders that all kind of jump out to me in a way, and that kind of brings me to my kind of fun summation point, which is you talked about looking forward with this team. The thing that does stand out to me, and it's easy to not see if you're just looking at how many top 100 prospects they have, but you and I've talked about this before, Jeff. Like the thing that stands out to me about this raise list that is a little bit concerning to me for the long term, it's not as deep as it's been. There have been a lot of years, and you talk about them managing the 40-man roster. There have been a lot of years where I felt like that the Rays had more guys than you could fit on a 40-man roster. And so they would have to make trades. And I'm not saying that Ford Proctor or Miles Mastroboni or guys like that have ended up being stars, but they have ended up being big leaguers who the Rays knew they were big leaguers when they were trading them away. They just didn't have room for them, right? If I look at it right now, the best way I can put it is if Dominic Keegan's in their top 10, and I don't dislike Dominic Keegan or Proctor. We work for prospects to succeed. But I feel confident in saying that a few years ago, I'd have probably ranked Dominic Keegan 20th in the race system, 21st, 22nd, 23rd. And now he's a top 10 prospect. If you look at the pitching that they have right now, throw Boz out of it, who's had success in the big leagues. If they don't have anyone else in the top 10, and I like a Santiago Suarez. I like a Marcus Johnson, guys like that. However, it's not the same depth of pitching talent that it has been before. So if you said, am I, I, I do feel a little bit like this is not the same system that it's been five years ago, four years ago, three years ago. And for a team that has to constantly regenerate, that might be a lot. I don't think it's a much of a concern for 24. And by the way, Credit to them for producing a junior Camonero. Credit for them for Xavier Isaac taking a step forward, all things like that. But that said, it does cause me a little bit of concern when you look at the longer term that they kind of do rely on almost a never-ending assembly line of, of minor league talent. And I still think there's a lot there, but not the same level as it was a few years ago. Yeah, I think that that's kind of the concern when you look at the 40-man roster, when you look at the 26-man roster right now. And I think some of it with the pitching, if there weren't wasn't the level of pitching injuries that they uh, incurred last year, it might look a little bit different. You might say, hey, they'll figure things out. This is a nasty rotation where they could maybe even go six guys deep. Um, it's still There's still some pitching depth. There's still some interesting players. I think the other thing that you can never count out with the Rays is they can go and find somebody that we're not even thinking of, figure something out, and all of a sudden this guy's throwing quality innings. Uh, somehow in the mix with their uh, their lineup optimization, I didn't want to call it platoons. I thought that was a, a good point that you made earlier. Um, but yeah, I, you know, it's not the same system as it was in, in years prior. Um, but we'll, we'll see how things shake out. JJ, any sort of closing thoughts when you think about this race system? When I, the other thing, I, when I think about this race system that I'm going to be interested to see, you, you hit on it. Like, 
I'm fascinated to see what their pitching does at the big league level this year, partly because I do think I would say, like, for instance, don't freak out if Shane Boz isn't in the starting rotation. Even if you look at it, Tommy John recovery wise, he might be ready for opening day. I think that they're looking at it. I think that they're aiming it. They understand after last year, it's, you know, they, there have been few teams better than the April 2023 Tampa Bay Rays. And there have been few teams that, you look around and go at the end of the season and say, is this the same team? Like, I do think the pitching, I think, is going to be better by the end of the year than it was at the end of last year, which it should be because there are not many teams out there who've had their rotation as ravaged by injury as the Rays did last year. The bigger question, the, the, the million-dollar question for the Rays, though, is this. Two years ago, when they got bounced by the Guardians, in a series, a wild card series where offense went to die. I think that was two years ago. I think my my brain's not that foggy. But two years ago when they did that, it was they had a lineup that was viewed clearly as flawed. That okay, we turned the knob to run prevention, which run prevention is cheaper to to acquire than run production. They turned the knob too far and they just couldn't score. Right. Yeah, that wasn't the case during the regular season last year. This is the team that had way more power last year. This is the team that had guys up and down the lineup who should be able to produce. And then they went to the postseason last year, and the same thing happened again. They, they have to figure out, was it just a fluke? We're only talking about a few games. Or is there something about what this team is doing that isn't working as far as producing runs in the postseason? And they have to figure that out before the postseason arrives. I do expect them to be back there again. They're there most every year, and I do think this team's good enough to be back there again, even in an extremely talented AL East. But when they get there, I want to see, are they going to score, you know, are they going to have a game where they score four runs? Because that doesn't sound like a lot, but last two years, that's been really troublesome for them. They have just been shut down. That's what I'm interested to see. And obviously... When we talk about this this farm system, I just said there are way more bats than than arms right now. But having adding a junior Camonero to your lineup, adding a Curtis Mead down the road, not right away, but adding Carson Williams down the road even further, but not that far away, adding a Xavier Isaac could help that because this is a team that does have has always for a long time had a knack of developing relatively well-rounded hitters with some thought with some pop. If they can do that, if they can fix that problem, I think that's even everyone may want to talk about what is it about the Rays and why did they have so many guys go down with elbow injuries and feel free to talk about that. But I'm much more focused on why is it that their offense has disappeared the last couple of years in the postseason and what can they do to fix that? I think that's a perfect way to wrap it up. Uh, that is what the Rays need to get over. That's their hump. Um We'll see if this is the season where they finally get over it or if it's in the coming years. Um, we'll be interesting to follow. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. We appreciate your support of the website, of these podcasts, and your subscriptions, of course. Um, have a great afternoon. For Jeff Ponce, for J.J. Cooper, we're up.